Okay, Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, as I mentioned, we've been, we've been out a couple of weeks, so it may be helpful <clears throat> for us today to just catch up a little bit. We're going to not quite, I think, make it through the end of the chapter, but we should finish up uh, next week, uh, finish up chapter 7. And uh, so I just thought it might be a good thing for us to uh, just sort of go back and not necessarily review a lot of that, but maybe just helpful for us to read this particular chapter uh, just to kind of get into the flow of what's being said. And then we'll be picking up uh, specifically down in verse 19 uh, this morning. So let me just read this for us and then we'll, we'll jump in here. <clears throat> uh, Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, Verse 1, a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The, The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, For anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous, excuse me, and ruin yourself. Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And I discovered, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets." whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand. 
but I have not found a woman among all these. We're going to hold off till next week on that. <laughs> I need one more week to think on that. <clears throat> all the guys are like, I'm showing up next week. <clears throat> Got to hear about verse 28. You'll be surprised. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Uh, on, our, on our church website, there's a, there's a tab. If you go to the website, there's a tab uh, about the church, and then there's a, another button you push that's it's titled uh, Doctrine and Distinctives, where we list some of the things that we teach as a church as well as some of the things that, that we hold as sort of, you might say, core convictions. And one of those core convictions that we've listed under that section of distinctives, we, we call that, we, we call this particular thing on our website a high view of God, a high view of God. So at, at our church, we, we want to have a, a high view of the Lord. That is to say that we believe that God is holy, uh, that God is, is glorious, and that every person exists to honor the Lord, to trust the Lord, to love the Lord, to obey the Lord. And what we want to do in, in our church is to cultivate a, what you might call a transcendent worship, uh, a, a worship that upholds the majesty of God, that upholds the glory of God, and leads believers to both fear God, to have a concern as they come to worship, about what honors God and what dishonors Him. A concern about what pleases the Lord and what displeases the Lord. We want people to have a a healthy fear of God, but at the same time to experience great joy in the Lord. So it's a a reverence for God. It's a recognition of of God's power and His glory and His majesty, but not a a reverence or not a fear that would drive people away, but, but actually a fear that would draw us as His people closer to him to experience more pleasure than, than we could possibly imagine imagine so it's important for us to have a, a high view of God uh, not only because it it is that is consistent with everything that, that the Bible tells us about God but also because it will keep we believe a, a ch- our church or any church for that matter from drifting drifting into uh, pragmatism It'll keep a church from, from replacing faithful preaching with, uh, with drama or comedy or pop psychology or other forms of entertainment in an effort to draw more people. We believe that having a high view of God will, will keep the church from replacing this God-centered, reverent worship with, with a rock concert or replacing even, in some cases, theology with methodology where doctrine and theology gets sort of minimized and sort of out, and it's all about the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we appeal to people and, and try to minister to their, their felt needs. So it, it will keep a church. So it's consistent. A high view of God's consistent with everything we know about God. It is, it is a guard and it, it serves as a protection for any church against uh, those forms of, of ministry that, that threaten the truth. Uh, and it certainly will keep us as individuals from sin and discouragement. I mean, to, to, to recognize God's glory and His majesty and His holiness should, should help us in our battle against sin, right? Because God is pure and God is holy and He's called us to be holy. It guards us from discouragement because sometimes we fail, hello, <laughs> right? And we stumble and yet God tells us we're going to do that. 
right? He knows all things, and He's working things for our good and His glory in our lives. And so it, 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 it keeps us from sinking into despair in His belief when we, when, we, when we stumble and fall. So we have this high view of God, but there's another, there's another category on, our, on that list of distinctives. One of them is a high view of God, but then right under that, a couple of sections after that, we have a, we have a, a section called a low view of man, right? So we want to have a high view of God, but we ought also want to have a very low view of, of man. That is to say that we believe that man is utterly fallen in, in sin, right? Uh, he, he isn't just disen, disenfranchised. He isn't just struggling. Uh, he isn't basically a good, good person with just some bad habits uh, in need of some, of some kind of a better example or some life coach. Uh, man isn't just troubled and in need of a Christian mascot to cheer, cheer him on or to cheer us on as we attempt to overcome our inefficiencies. Scripture tells us that we are absolutely, apart from Christ, absolutely in rebellion against God, right? Uh, that apart from Christ, everything that a person does in his rebellion is sinful, even though unbelievers do things that we sometimes say, well, that's, that was a good thing to do, right? And what we're saying is that it, it depends. If we use a narrow definition of good, that's a broad, sort of a broad definition. Yes, that was a good thing. I mean, I'm grateful that that person is, you know, staying married and not breaking up. I'm, I'm thankful that that person kept their promise. I'm thankful that that person showed up at work when they said they would show up at work. So, I mean, we appreciate people doing those things and they're good things, but in a narrow sense, they're not because they're not done with the heart motivation to glorify God, right? They're not looking to Christ by faith. They're doing these things, and we're thankful. We're thankful that they're not as sinful as they could be, right? That they're not acting out and, and being as obedient actions as they could be, but yet they are in rebellion against God, and everything they do is sinful in the sense that it's not for the glory of Christ, right? So we believe the Scriptures teach that. We also that, that man completely lacks the ability to submit to God or to reform himself, right? He needs, he needs God to intervene in his life. And we know that man is totally deserving of eternal punishment. That's what we mean by total depravity, right? Man, man is totally rebellious against God, totally sinful, totally incapable of changing himself, and totally deserving of, of eternal wrath. And we need to keep it in mind, right? These are, these are two truths that we have to, to keep in our minds as Christians, that we have a high view of God, but that we, we have a very low view of, of man and, and a low view of, our, of ourselves. When I'm counseling someone and they, and they confess that they've committed or, or, or maybe even just simply struggling with some sort of severe or some sort of scandalous sin in their life, Keeping those twin convictions in balance helps me to respond to people in a helpful way, right? Because on the one hand, a high view of God sort of, for me, it sort of stabilizes me because I know that God is in control. <laughs> so as this person sharing these things, I'm like, okay, God is in control. God is in control. And God will and has promised to help me to help that person. So all this stuff's coming and it just like, whoa. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking I've, I've never heard anything like this, although at, its heart, at the heart level, I can say I've heard, of, I've heard of this. 
But when it comes to the particulars and the specifics, sometimes it's, this is a first. I've never heard of this. And yet in the back of my mind, one of those stabilizing truths is that God is in control. He's sovereign. He's the king. He's holy. He knows exactly what's going on, and he actually ordained this very conversation, right? But on the other hand, a low view of man keeps me from falling out of my chair, right? It, it sort of it keeps you calm because, because what the scriptures tell us regarding man is that any person can commit any sin at any time. Any person can commit any sin at any time. So it's this double conviction, a conviction about the sufficiency of God in Christ and a conviction about potential spiritual failure in the life of any believer, right? The potential is there. So on one hand, we know God can handle any sin, right? He's, he's, big, he's big God. God can handle any sin. And on the other side, man can commit any sin. People can do any sin. And this isn't just good to keep in, in your minds for counseling. It's just a good, good thing to keep in mind as you, as you live life, right? Uh, it'll help you to not overreact. So when your spouse disrespects you or, or when your children disobey you or when your pastor, and we know this would never happen, but when your pastor offends you, right? When those things happen because they're going to happen, right? When those things happen... Uh, it helps you to not overreact to that when you're sinned against, right? Because you know God is in control and you know that anyone can commit any sin at any time. Uh, what, about, what about when people you look up to fall into sin, right? Where you hold someone up, you, you highly respect them for their, for their character and their, and their walk with the Lord, their years of, of faithfulness and, and a godly example. When you hear about that, does it shatter you? I mean, does it just completely um, upset your life? Does your faith collapse when you find out that someone that you thought was a godly example has actually been... I, I saw someone yesterday, someone that I counseled a couple of years ago. And uh, they, I hadn't seen them in a while. I saw them at the store and they just said, hey, just to let you know that that situation, it was one of those situations where you know, you only can deal with the facts in front of you, right? You kind of, you kind of think there's some things that are going on. You kind of assume there are some more issues underneath the surface, but there really was no, the, the, that information had not come to light. And so we were only dealing with, with the truth, what we knew to be true. And they, were, they just said, hey, just to let you know that situation, there was more there. And they just briefly just said it was, you know, it, it was what we, what you probably thought was there and it just wasn't coming to the surface. It was actually... 10-year history there. But when we hear that, does it shock us? Does it devastate our Christian lives? Well, not, not if our faith is in Christ, right? Not if our faith is in Christ and not that person. So someone said it this way, the best of men are only men at best, right? So, so you don't go into catatonic shock when you find out that your employees are wasting time on Facebook, Right? You don't go into catatonic shock when you, when you discover that maybe a son or a daughter are struggling with some particular sin in their life. Uh, you don't go into catatonic shock when you discover that your friend lied to you about something. Okay? 
You definitely don't go into catatonic shock when you realize that one of the political candidates has lied to you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, does, does that mean that we tolerate sin? No, it doesn't mean that, right? It just it, You still deal with sin appropriately, and you may need to, in certain situations, address it very, very directly. And you, and you might have to, to step in and to try, to try to correct that situation. You just don't let it destroy you, right? So a, a high view of God and a low view of man are still, not just in Solomon's day, but even still today, a wise approach to living, to living life in a world that is under the effects and the shadow of the fall. So wisdom literature as a whole is about a high view of God. When you go through Job, you definitely see this in the book of Job, this sort of crescendo of, of, of who God is. He knows, and, and who are you to tell him what to do? I mean, you see this in a lot, of, a lot of the wisdom literature. You even see it in books like Proverbs. You certainly see a high view of God in, in, the, book of, in the book of Psalms. Uh, emphasize that the fear of the Lord is the starting point for knowledge and wisdom. But the wisdom liter- literature also gives attention to the second of these two pillars, right? The, uh, uh, this, low, this low view of man. In fact, even in this chapter, in, in verse 20... Solomon says here, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So Solomon addresses this because of the overall message of Ecclesiastes and because of the, of the specific message that he's touched on in the previous verses. From a, from a general perspective, life under the sun is frustrating for many reasons, but one of the things that frustrates us the most, if we love the Lord, is sin. <laughs> your sin, don't be shocked, your sin frustrates me. My sin frustrates me, right? This is a, this is a very frustrating thing about the Son. Our sin, both public and private, both individual and corporate, may be the greatest of frustrations. Therefore, to live wisely in a world still under the curse, you're going to have to embrace both a realistic view of yourself and your fellow man. You're going to have to understand the sinfulness of man and factor that into life and your expectations about life. Uh, You don't want other people to sin. Uh, You may not want to sin yourself, but you're going to have to, without, without descending into cynicism, right, you're going to have, have to have a realistic view of sin. People sin, <laughs> okay? I mean, you wouldn't think that Solomon would have to make such a obvious statement, but he's, what he's, he's literally, these are his conclusions, right? These are his observations. These are his experiences, and he says... Hey, guess what I learned out there? I learned that there's not a righteous man on earth. <laughs> and we would say, amen, right? We learned that. In fact, we learned that. That lesson has been reinforced all week long, right? There wasn't a day this week that didn't sin. And there wasn't a day that went by this week that someone did not sin against you. This is a reality. And, and having a biblical anthropology a biblical view or understanding of man will help you to stay calm and to be patient when people sin against you. 
So since Ecclesiastes is all about living wisely in a world that has been subjected to futility and, and dealing with the frustrations of life under the sun, then it only makes sense that Solomon would address this particular issue of sin. And specifically, he deals with it at this, at this particular place in the book because of what he has just said in verses 14 to 18. In those verses, as we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, Solomon dealt with and rebuked a common misuse of wisdom in his day. He rebuked the idea that you could use a righteous life to force God to bring you perpetual good in life. This is what he's attacking and addressing, in, in, for instance, here in verse 14, when it says there, In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous. Do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? This is what he's dealing with. He's dealing with this formula living, right? This, this tendency that we have to say, if you input one thing, then you, this other thing should pop out, right? So if... If we ungodliness, then it just makes sense that we would see the consequences of that. Uh, we would expect to see them come quickly, right? We would not expect to see a wicked man living consistently, habitually over a long period of time in wickedness and not dealing with the consequences of that. At the same time, we would expect that if there's a person that is consistently, habitually as a pattern in a way of life, who love, loves the Lord and is trying to be honoring to the Lord and please the Lord, we would expect that that person would not have to deal with the same troubles, right? And the same adversity that, that comes to, to others. So there is a general principle that God blesses the righteous and God punishes the wicked. But what these individuals were doing in Solomon's day, and again, we said this is just common to man, right? This, these problems still exist. But what they were doing is they were turning that general principle into an absolute principle. Expecting God to immediately judge the wicked when they sinned. And, and on the other side, expecting to, to, to themselves avoid any and all adversity as a result of their own righteous conduct. And it's as if Solomon is saying here, besides... Who could be that righteous anyway? <laughs> That's kind of you, you almost feel like when he's he makes this comment about there there's no one that is without sin. He's just saying, yeah, the general principle is true, but if you're thinking that your righteous living is going to keep adversity at bay, just don't forget this basic truth: no one is perfectly righteous. <laughs> so. Don't get in your mind this, I'm going to do this for God. I'm going to somehow back God into a corner, and he's got to do nothing but bring perpetual blessing in my life because I'm being faithful to him. Don't forget, there is no man that consistently lives for the Lord that way. We are all sinners, right? So it's as if Solomon say, who could live so perfectly as to somehow secure only good, only good from God and not difficulty? And the answer is, is nobody. So Solomon addresses the problem of sin, and he does this in a broader 
and a broader, I would say, discussion about wisdom. Because what he's done throughout this chapter is he, 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 he there's a, n- a number of terms that keep popping up in chapter 7, but one of the most common are the terms about this foolishness or folly and this idea of knowledge and discretion and, and wisdom. And so he addresses the problem of sin, but he sort of does it in this broader extra discussion about wisdom. And perhaps Solomon here, and this we're going to pick up here in verse, verse 19, but perhaps Solomon, when he gets to this point, is concerned about us developing a negative, negative view of wisdom. Uh, because he has said at times some, some things about the, the shortfalls of wisdom, or if you will, the, the limitations. In fact, he'll even say something about that later in this chapter, the limitations of wisdom. Um, maybe he's thinking that he's concerned that if he tells you, listen, there are these exceptions, okay? There are going to be times when the righteous are go through adversity, and there are going to be times when the wicked are prospering. That when we hear that, that we might over to that and just say, well, then, then who cares about wisdom living, right? I mean, because what we want is the guarantee, right? In our idolatrous motives, that's what we want, right? We want to know if you do this, then you're going to get this. We want that guaranteed life, right? Maybe now that Solomon's addressed that idolatry and said, no, no, that's not the way this works. Maybe he's concerned that now all of a sudden we get this negative view of wisdom, and we just say, okay, well, then what's the point in the Proverbs? Why even try? Because you just told us that we're going to be doing this, living the proverbial Christian life, and that it's not going to work out always the way that we hoped it would work out. So Solomon, I think, dives in here. And for the rest of the chapter, he, he highlights for us the advantages of wisdom, the character of wisdom. And, and, he, and he makes the point, wisdom isn't the problem. Okay, wisdom is not the problem. It's the abuse of wisdom that gets us into trouble. And even though wisdom cannot remove all of the frustrations of the fall, it is still exceedingly valuable. Uh, even back in chapter 2, after describing in, in a testimonial way all, all of the dead-end pursuits of his life, trying to find lasting satisfaction but coming up empty every, every time, Solomon said this in verse 12, So I turned to consider wisdom... Madness and folly, for what will, the, what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw, verse 13, that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. So he's saying, listen, with, living a, a wise life is not going to safeguard you against adversity, but, but don't be confused. This is night and day, okay? Foolishness and wisdom are like light and darkness, Okay, so be careful about your sort of developing a negative view of, of wisdom. Even in our chapter for today, what does he say there in verse 12? We, we've already covered this, but he said back in verse 12 of chapter 7, For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. So, so don't get the wrong idea. Solomon was big on wisdom. Okay? He just understood that he, there's a ceiling Okay, and that's what he kept bumping up against is he kept trying to investigate and kept trying to to get to the end of this thing and resolve all these all these enigmas and all these and answer all these questions. And he just realized that after a lifetime of doing that, that that wisdom doesn't do that. It doesn't accomplish that. So there are some limitations. But but Solomon 
was big on wisdom, and having rebuked its misuse, he reminds that wisdom is good. Wisdom is good. In fact, beginning in verse 18 and down through the end of the chapter, he will give us, and we'll only cover one of these today, but four descriptions of wisdom. Four descriptions of wisdom. The first is this. The wisdom of God is a good governor. The wisdom of God is a good governor. Verse 19, wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Uh, in other places, the Bible tells us that wisdom is, is pricier than pearls, that it's better than jewels. Proverbs 16.16 16 says, How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. So here Solomon says, wisdom will make us strong. And he does this with a very simple analogy. He imagines a city governed by a council of ten leaders. Now most cities would have been fortunate to have had one good leader, right? Just, I mean, they would, they would have been fortunate to have one wise leader to protect its inhabitants. But this particular city, he says, has ten good rulers to govern its civic affairs. And a wise person has the strength of a city like that. A wise person has the strength of a well-governed city. Now, how is that? Well, he says wisdom is a, it's a governor of sorts. It's a, um, it, it, if you think of it this way, wisdom governs our thoughts. It, it's, it regulates, okay, this is what rulers do. They, they administrate and they, and they regulate and they safeguard and they protect and they organize things, right? This is what wisdom does for us. Uh, wisdom governs our thoughts and helps us to think about things in a God-centered way. So when things happen in life, God's wisdom helps us to sort of in, interpret those things, right? To have a, a proper perspective. For instance, when Something happens in those, even those two things of a high view of God, having a high view of God and a low view of man. Those are, those are things that, that, that regulate our thoughts, right? They govern our thoughts and they help us to, to interpret life in, in, in the right way. Uh, wisdom governs our will so that we know what choices to make in life. Wisdom governs our, our speech so that we know what to say and what not to say. In fact, Proverbs is full of great wisdom about speech, right? Just, just when to respond, when to be silent, okay? The danger of too many words. Proverbs talks about that, <laughs> right? That the more words you speak, the greater the possibility you're going to sin. Makes sense, right? In the multitude of words, transgression is unavoidable, Proverbs says. <laughs> so, so there's all these, all these things that help to govern our life. It governs our thoughts, our will, our speech, our actions, so that we know what to do in any and every situation. It, help, it protects us by helping us to interpret life, by giving us general principles that encourage both a high view of God as well as a low view of man. And one of those foundational principles that helps us to navigate life in a fallen world, Solomon actually mentions in the very next verse, namely the principle that sin touches everything and everyone. Verse 20, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. That is to say, not just that we live in a world that is affected by sin and 
sin is at play. Sin is wreaking havoc in the lives of the people that we deal with every week. Not, I mean, we know that to be true in the lives of, of unbelievers, right? But sin is also, right, at play and sometimes wreaking havoc in the lives of Christians. In fact, Shane's going to be getting into this in the next few weeks in Romans 7. And our own hearts, right? And Solomon's just saying here, listen, sinless perfection is not found this side of heaven. <laughs> it is not found this side of heaven. Uh, it is not found on this side of glorification. In Christ, we are sinners. We are saved sinners, but we are sinners nonetheless. So does that mean that we should just continue sinning? I mean, if we just admit, you're right, Solomon, we get it. We're gonna, we got this sin problem. We, we're, we're justified. We're in Christ. We're forgiven, but we're still dealing with the effects of sin. Even in our own, own hearts, we're dealing with sin and the flesh. So, so we just, just give in? Should we just react in that way? Well, we know that's not true, right, because our pastor told us not to do that, right? A few weeks ago, did he not, right? I mean, we've had numbers of, numerous sermons on this recently, right? Romans 6. Is this what Paul addressed? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. May it never be, he says. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So we know God has called us with a holy calling to be a holy vessel. But as we strive by the power of the Spirit to bring our practice, our daily activities and our daily lives more in line with our position, or we might say to become who we are, right? We are saints. We are holy ones. We have been set apart for God. Now it's time to start acting that way, right? That's what we're trying to do. Even though we're trying to do that by the power of the Spirit of God, we still have to deal with this very real and tiresome and distressing reality, and that is this issue of sin in our lives. So even if that formula thinking that Solomon confronted back in 16 were absolute, it still wouldn't work because no one is sinless. No righteous man is perfect. Righteous people do live righteously, but they will not continually do good until they are dead, (laughs) right? And in the presence of God. Now, wouldn't it be wise to factor that in? Wouldn't it be wise to incorporate that sad but very significant reality into your worldview? Wouldn't that make a difference in the way that you deal with relationships? It, isn't it possible that the truth could affect how you respond when you are sinned against? Understanding at the outset that people are going to lie? Understanding that people are going to take advantage of you? And then what about when you sin? What about when you sin and how you respond when you sin? When you sin, there's no need to go into a three-month valley of depression, Right? No need to do that when you sin. What do we do when we sin? It's, it's, not, it's not complicated. Don't overthink this. This is not a trick question. What do you do when you sin? Confess, repent, and believe. What did you do to become a Christian? I mean, what did, what did you do? What did the Lord command you to do? It's your conversion. To confess, repent, and believe. We're just lifelong confessors, right? That's what we, that was the first time we ever did it. When we got saved... That was the first time we ever confessed. That was the first time we ever repented. That was the first time that we ever believed in Christ. But what do we do now is we're, now that we're saved? 
What do we do? Been walking with the Lord for a number of years or weeks or months, whatever. What do we do? We just keep doing what we did initially, right? We just keep confessing. We keep repenting. We keep trusting, right? So what do you do when you, when you sin? You don't, no need to be devastated even by your own sin, right? Are you shocked? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like song. Are you surprised when you sin? Any person can commit any sin on any day, at any moment. When that happens, don't go into a cave. Don't stop praying. Because that's our, I think one of the first things sometimes our temptation is run from God, right? Run and hide. Isn't that what Adam and Eve, I mean, we, we still deal with that. When what God is saying is confess. And we're not talking, again, we're not talking about treating sin lightly. We're just saying, what are you going to do, spend the next few months, what, being dishonoring to God? Just totally unuseful to God because you sinned? No, you confess, you repent, you believe. You humble yourself, you receive God's grace, and you get on with pursuing Christ. The point here is that we need to accept the fact that we are all sinners and we need to learn to deal with people as they are. So you say, Solomon, what what do you mean? Well, he gives us a practical example to help us out, an example that we can all relate to. Verse 21, also do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you, you likewise have many times cursed others. This is the kind of wise biblical counsel that ought to be better understood and, and, and practiced by Christians. And this is a situation that we can all identify with, right? I mean, even if we don't have servants. Now, I don't think many of you have servants. Although, again, we've, we've said there's, a, there's probably a, a better comparison here. And we talk about even the New Testament servants and, and masters. It's, we, we, in our modern day, it's probably more equivalent to an employer and an employee relationship. But even if we don't have servants, we all at some point have overheard somebody saying something or being told about someone saying something about us that is either unkind or untrue or both. And how do we normally respond? How do we normally respond? You tell me. Some of you I know. I mean, I know some of you personally are like, you got a big bullseye. (laughs) It's like you're walking around the bullseye in your chest. It's like, attack me. Just says, attack me. Lie about me. Slander me. I mean, I'm saying not all of us, not everybody in here experiences that to the same degree, but some of you I know that are just, it seems like it's just a regular thing. And how do we respond when that happens? When you find out someone's been gossiping about you or you find out, you either hear them gossiping about you or lying about you or you somebody tells you, you know, puts you in that awkward predicament where somebody tells you that someone is, and you're trying to figure out what's the next step biblically. It's like, okay, I heard heard that so-and-so said this about me, but now you got this other person involved, and so do you go with them, and they don't want to go, right? right. Never want to go. I just wanted to let you know what so-and-so said. I'm telling you guys, I people in the church have been, they will put you in this pickle so many times, and we just nip it in the bud. Is, Bar- is it Barney said that, nip it in the bud? We, we just say, stop right there. Whatever you're going to tell, you just, you better be willing to go. If what you're about to tell me, I hope you're willing to go with me to talk to that person. Because I cannot go to that person and deal with that and then them say, well, who, who told you that? And then me say, well, I can't tell you. I you know, yeah. can't do that. So you better, if you're going to share stuff, you better be willing to go and help people and not just run them in the ground, right? Or else you're as guilty as they are, right? I mean, if you're, all you're going to do is share the information and you're not willing to go and help, okay? 
But what do we normally do when we hear that stuff? You hear people talking about you. What are your react? What's your reaction? What do, how do we react sometimes? Anger. anger, obviously, anger, frustration. What else? Disbelief. Di- shock. It, so it's just, I can't believe that person. It says you can think of a conversation where sometimes you were you, they were telling you the total opposite, right? right? I thought that person loved me. I mean, I thought that person thought this about me, and now they said that. Shock, anger, devastation. We open an investigation. Right? I mean, we're going we're gonna to call the attorney general. We're going to get a case file number on this thing because we've got to find out if that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg, what you heard. Right? You want to know everything else. Okay? But what about wisdom? Wisdom keeps us on the right track here. Wisdom governs and guides us through these kinds of things. And what does wisdom say? Let me give you three just practical things in this kind of situation. Wisdom says this, recognize the folly of eavesdropping. Recognize the folly of eavesdropping. In other words, if we are wise, we'll be careful not to take too much interest in what other people say about us. That's wise living. That's really wise living. If we're going to be wise, we need to be careful not to take too much interest in what other people say about us. And as you look at the What's going on in the political arena? I mean, it's, I mean, you see it. What are they concerned about? What everybody else thinks and says, right? Way too interested in that. Way too interested in that. Charles Bridges said this, Listeners standing up upon the tiptoe of suspicion seldom hear good about themselves. Listeners standing upon the tiptoe of suspicion seldom hear good things about themselves. So recognize the folly of eavesdropping, like just wanting to know, right? I just, want to, I just want to listen in. just want to know what those people are saying, especially if it's about me. Secondly, if someone is talking about you, don't panic. <laughs> don't panic. Solomon is not saying sin isn't a big deal. He's simply reminding us that all sinners do it, and we don't need to panic when they do it against us. So parents, your kids are going to be bad. Okay, they're going to be bad. Couples, your spouse is going to sin against you. They're going to sin against you. Young adults, your parents are going to sin against you. Your parents are going to sin against you. So don't react in anger that lashes out because you feel betrayed. And don't have a pick up your ball and go home attitude. Some people get upset in the church when they find they find out that someone is gossiping about them or when they feel judged by others. But what we need here, let's just call it an an intolerant patience. An intolerant patience. We We don't tolerate sin because all sin is an attack on God's glory and His character. But we are patient because we know, in fact, we expect sinners to sin. So again, we're not making light of sin. We're just saying we need to have a a realistic expectation here. Spurgeon told his pastoral students that that the minister ought to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. (laughs) One blind eye and one deaf ear. He's just saying, again, you 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 don't have to see everything and you don't have to know everything, right? That is to say, we need to know what to hear and see 
and what to ignore, especially when it comes to criticism. That is what wisdom does. It helps us not to be overly concerned about what other people say, and it teaches us to not take offense, but to respond with gentleness and grace. Number three, remember that you are a sinner too. Remember that you are a sinner too. After, after all, your words are not always that charitable, right? Your words are not always that edifying. In fact, to our own shame, every one of us would have to admit that we have often said things behind people's backs, things that we would never dream of saying to their face. Join the club. Hello. Yeah, we have, we have jackets. We'll give them out after the class. We'd, we've all done this, right? Every one of us has spoken out of frustration. Every one of us at times has said things that are far from kind without fully understanding the situation. We've jumped to conclusions. Every one of us has gone on the offensive when we have been attacked by others. But wisdom says that those who are aware of their own sinfulness will more easily shrug off the foolish and unkind remarks of others. Charles Swindoll in his, his, uh, his book on Ecclesiastes says this, quote, So when you get punched around by the blow of someone's verbal missile, when you are shot at and hit, just remember if the cursing servant knew how bad you really are, he or she would have much worse to say. So give God thanks that they are hitting just the visible, <laughs> not the whole truth. Yeah. Consider wisdom, Solomon says, and let your own sinful words remind you not to take what other people say too much to heart, but make allowances for them instead, offering them the same grace that you yourself need so often. Jonathan Edwards, a young man, he was finishing up his ministry, his, uh, ministry training. He came up with 70 resolutions. He wrote, he wrote these resolutions over a period of two years, but one of the resolutions, and these became for him on the front end of ministry, what he wanted was a way to gauge his ministry, to gauge his own personal spiritual life. He wanted these resolutions so that, it, so that it, at times he could look at those resolutions on a regular basis and assess his life to see if he was truly living out what he knew to be. These were convictions. These were important principles to live by. He could sort of gauge how well, how well was he doing. But this was one of him, one of his. In fact, he had several of them regarding communication, but this is one of his resolutions. He had a personal resolution to, quote, never to say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings and agreeable to the golden rule. That's a mouthful, right? I, I'm not going to say anything against anybody unless it agrees with, first of all, high Christian honor. Is this going to please and glorify God? Is it out of love for mankind? Is it, is it coming out of an attitude of humility and a sense of my own faults and failings? And is it agreeable, agreeable to what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount? If we're, wise and, and if we're wise, we will follow the instructions that Paul gave to Titus in Titus 3.2, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? Because we understand sin. Because we have a low view of man. Because we know that sin has affected everyone and everything. Because we know that any person can commit any sin 
on any given day. And because we know that every one of us have failed to meet God's standard of perfect speech. So we, we need God's saving and sanctifying grace that brings with it the strength of wisdom to know what to hear and what not to hear, how to speak and how not to speak. The wisdom of God, wisdom of God is a good governor. It's a blessing as it guards, guards our hearts, filters our thoughts, and regulates our lives. Uh, there are three more, three more characteristics of wisdom. Uh, at the end of the chapter here, we'll get to those next time. And I encourage you, if you're interested, you can be, che- you can be checking out um, verse 28. Uh, I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all of these. Right? Is Solomon a chauvinist? Right? Is he, is he, is he hey, guys are great, women like this. What is Solomon getting at? Uh, we'll bring, hopefully bring some, some clarity to that next time. Okay, folks, thank you for your time.